Hello and welcome to the Filmmaking Stuff Podcast, where you'll get insider tactics on how to make, market, and sell your movie without the middleman. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome your host, LA-based motion picture executive, Jason Brubaker. Hi, filmmakers. Jason Brubaker here. And today joining us is Nick Izzy. Nick began his career producing music documentaries for major record labels, several of which ranked on the weekly Billboard Top 10 Home Video Sales Charts. After that, he produced several feature films, including the film adaptation of the New York Times best-selling novel, The Chaperone, which we'll talk a lot about today. That was written by Academy Award winner uh, Julian Fellows. And most recently, he produced One Bedroom, which had its world premiere at Fantasia Fest. Your list of accolades goes on and on and on. And you're certainly somebody who is continually leveling up their film career. But I'm sure like all of us, you didn't just start out working on studio level projects. So can you give us some insight to your background? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, like you said, I, I did actually start um, on more on the finance side when, when I wanted to get into it. Um, listening to you and listening to some of the great advice that you used to give about the um, non-traditional money sources. And so how I started my career is I started as a director in Canada. Uh, I was one of the world's worst directors, and I but I was fortunate enough to make a really small film. The film is called Protest the Hero. That actually started with a company called Underground Operations, which was a really fantastic small record label. They happen to have a relationship with, uh, with Universal, and then Universal ultimately distributed the film. So we didn't begin this process when we were creating it uh, with Universal in mind. But it just goes into the proof that relationships, this is really a relationship-driven industry. Um, you have to have that as a commodity, I think, because it not only enhances your position as a filmmaker, but also position for either knowledge or bringing some element to a film that somebody needs. Um, if you're a director and you have a camera package, you can help out people who are really struggling for budgets and you look for producing credit or you get some other type of, of credit, whether it's a company credit. And that if you start to do enough of those, eventually somebody will have a relationship with a, a good distributor or with a with a good financier and they will bring you along. So I think relationships is actually a tangible commodity um, and it shouldn't be overlooked from younger filmmakers. So from your perspective, you would you might say like, hey, Jason, it's probably a good idea to take inventory of your skill set. And we're not just talking like having a camera package or, you know, having access to a lighting truck, which would be an asset. But also, what the heck are you good at? What are you interested in? And how can you present some value to quickly build relationships? Is, is that in line with what you're saying? Exactly. Yeah. Everybody goes through the grinder um, when they're when they're making their films. Whether if you've gone through a messy distribution um, or chain of title um, situation, your knowledge is valuable, and you can offer help to friends or to people who are seeking help that don't always have the resources to afford a lawyer or an attorney to, to review something for five or 10 hours, which is going to skyrocket the production council bill. So what you have to understand is you have to understand the, not only how to make a film, but also how to be beneficial and valuable to a film, whether it's through relationships or experience or overcoming something that just really people don't, they, they couldn't expect while making a film or, or going through the process of selling a film. So that also comes into the value of, of, when you're going through distribution and how you can help out others. And you can you start to build these relationships by visiting some festivals, which are not just 
Toronto or Sundance or Cannes, there's a lot of great festivals where you'll meet like-minded filmmakers who are probably going through the same thing that you went through. I mean, we all... I wanted to ask you about that because, you know, it's funny, when we set up this interview, I I made some assumptions. I was assuming you were in Los Angeles, but I'm thinking I'm, I'm wrong with that. Where the heck are you located? I'm actually in Canada right now, but I gave up my place in LA after two years. And the primary reason is that Los Angeles is a studio town and I am an independent filmmaker. And the two are like oil and vinegar. Um, you can go to LA and you can you can do your meetings and you can do your pitches, but I really don't think LA is really conducive to to, to independent filmmaking. There's certainly very little production in, in Los Angeles. And anybody who has uh, who who has another passport or or who's born, whose parents' lineage kind of date back to another country or or another continent, um, definitely should take advantage of their passports and their subsidies because international filmmaking is making is much more important to the to the ability to get films done these days. After you've done your first film, you should be looking to understanding where does your fit your film fit into the global marketplace. How does an international audience react to your film? And how do international partnerships factor into how you make your film? And those are really the traditional sources of how films are getting financed these days. Well, um, and, and I have to stop you because you just like, in, in your response, you just gave me so many different bullet points and so many different ways to take this. Um, and for our listeners, what I try to do in these conversations is I try to find some sort of roadmap, you know, based on your experience. So you know, there's some interesting things you said. So first and foremost, you don't necessarily be, need to be in Los Angeles uh, to make films. And certainly that's the case with you. Um, but I, I did want to stop you there because interestingly enough, you know, The Chaperone, that's that's a film that you were part of. And that screenplay, if I understand it, actually came from a studio. So here you are, talk, you know, you're touting the wonders of independent filmmaking, but you went you know, kind of through a studio system to get a screenplay that you eventually got funded. So, so kind of tie that together for me. Very, very true. The, <laughs> chaperone, the, the chaperone was actually, it was at a studio, but the good thing is that the chaperone from the outset clearly was an independent film. And, and when you look at the, how the film is kind of put together, it's really um, the traditional or, or the tradition of independent film. Somebody wrote a book, a really great book, which happened to have charted on uh, New York Times bestseller eventually, um, was a really great film about the genesis of cinema. It was about the biopic of Louise Brooks um, and her roots in Kansas and then transitioning into the starlet she would ultimately become by traveling to Prohibition, New York. Um, and so this was this was a film that that should have been constructed as an independent film, but um, because of because the underlying rights resided with uh, with Elizabeth McGovern, um, she who was a star of Down Abbey, she she had her writer of Down Abbey, Julian Fellows, write the write the script, and at the time, really the studio that is a studio film if you think about it, but so. It, it resided at Fox for a while. Fox couldn't figure out how to make the film. And ultimately, through relationships, we found out that uh, Elizabeth McGovern had these underlying rights. Um, we had a personal connection with her. And when I say we, I mean any one of my producing partners that I'm working with. And that's what I encourage filmmakers to have. I don't think they should be tied to a single 
partnership or entity, I think they should form relationships with everybody, um, whether it's in US or Canada or abroad. Um, I think that's key to getting your future films done. So in this case, I had worked with Rose Ganguza at Rose Pictures, who's a fantastic producer out in New York. She had produced Margin Call uh, and Kill Your Darlings. And uh, together, um, we would, when we found out about The Chaperone, um, we tried to figure out how do we make this film on an independent level. Rose and I would would constantly agonize over budgets, and and really the the production of the film really started at the genesis of of what is the budget for this film, and I and I think that's true for every filmmaker who's trying to make a film right now. Once you figure out the budget, then you got to go out and raise the funding. So connect those dots for us. Sure. So. For the chaperone, there was debt on the project, and there always is when when there's a script at a studio, because effectively it's it's put in something called turnaround, and turnaround is is ultimately a studio term, um, used to say we we will we we don't know how to do anything with this film, so what we're going to do is we're going to give you we're going to give the producer back the script, and for them to shop it around to independent producers or financers, but it's going to come at a cost. It's going to come at a cost of interest and premiums and whatever they deem is the cost of of getting giving away this script. So once we figured out what the debt is and how to do an independent film, which was a period piece set in New York during Prohibition, uh, during the Prohibition era, that's really when you have to figure out how are you able to to do these films. And, so and real quick, when you say debt on a project, um, do you mean because there were a lot of costs that went into the development at the studio and now they want that development money back or is it something else entirely exactly it could be it could be a confluence of things it could be uh producers fees writers fees interest um several overhead um so that and it's and sometimes it's not even just beholden to a studio it could be an independent producing company like it could very well i'm learning something new in what you're saying because now i'm thinking about all these great scripts that never get made they get stuck in what the studios refer to as development hell and I can only imagine that some of that development hell, the reason why it's stuck there is because a lot of these scripts are probably accumulating a lot of debt uh, from the development process. And now they're encumbered, just like you, you know, like a real estate property. That's right. It's exactly right. And, and that's the ability for, I think, independent filmmakers is the future is to find all these really great scripts. It's kicking over a lot of rocks. But this is why relationships are so important, because you may not have that knowledge, but the person that you gave the camera package to, they may have heard about something like a chaperone that they're very passionate about. Yeah. And so, so it's all starting to come together. I mean, you know, it, it's funny in, in all of my training, which you probably know very well, I'm always talking about the power of relationships and, and certainly, you know, that's a cliche thing that we all say relationships are everything, but you're starting to really show us in very practical terms, how you're able to get to the you know, the center of the Tootsie Pop or whatever, you know what I mean? The good stuff in the middle, (laughs) because here you are on the outside, you're saying, how can I present value? How can I present value? Then by presenting value, you you build the relationship. And then by building that relationship, somebody says, oh yeah, I know so-and-so has this script um, that's available, but there's some debt attached to it, but I think we can get around it this way. Exactly. And, and because of, if you have your, your understanding about how to actually make that film despite its hurdles, despite its debt, it will always have some form of some variation of what we went through with the chaperone, which was a period piece that's independent. 
which is very tough to do, especially because we filmed it in New York City. Um, there could have been options by going to Toronto or to filming it in London or Scotland, um, but the authenticity just wouldn't have been there. And, and thankfully for the team, we were all able to realize how we could actually get this done. And most of it doesn't it boils down to purely to experience and and having conversations if we didn't know how to do something we would pick up the phone and we'd call a friend who probably had a tougher time trying to get a, a period piece done in in um in new york there was a lot of calls we actually made to various tv uh production companies and to uh, studios that were shooting who had old props like boardwalk empire was one of them that we we definitely needed a lot of props from there so having had we not had these relationships to get props or get wardrobes for pennies on the dollar it wouldn't have been feasible but once you start to take into account the value of your relationships and the commodity of that. I think that's when you start to realize how you can get your films done. See, that's next level thinking because I often talk about backyard indies as being your first feature and your rite of passage where you're using the resources in your neighborhood to kind of make things happen. What you're talking about is a few levels up from that because you're thinking in a very creative way to say like, well, what other shows are in production or what other shows were in production? And then let's contact those production companies and see if they have any props available. I mean, that that's very, you know, that I think that's a really genius way to go about doing this stuff. But the, the beauty of this is the genesis was rooted in doing my first film. When you only have $25,000 and you don't have any lenses, who do you know that has a zoom lens? And who do you know who can, who can give you a Kino light? Um, and trying to figure out how do you do a dolly shot when you can't afford a dolly, um, which we did by putting a camera guy in a wheelchair and just wheeling him around, which was an old Robert Rodriguez trick. But so, but once you know the genesis of this and how to save money, I think you become very valuable to, to yourself and not only to films that are $25,000, but you become very pragmatic and a Blumhouse type of model. And that's what is kind of sweeping the industry right now. And I think that the Blumhouse model, what they're doing for horror, I think it's going to happen also for comedy and for sci-fi. I think National Lampoons has the ability to do low-budget comedy at, at cost. Um, and so they're going to need the efficiencies of the producers from the indie world. You know, back in 2009 or whatever, when I started filmmaking stuff, like I kind of had a vision. Because you saw what happened in the publishing world. You saw what was happening to music. And I mm -hmm. realized, like, in order to make this thing that we're doing makes sense, right? It, it used to be that you'd make one film and that's all you'd make and that would make a lot of money. But now you see a lot of these companies that are making a lot of different films, um, mm. but those films fall within the same genre. Uh, they reuse some props probably, I'm just assuming yeah. based on this conversation. They, they reuse resources. And, and what they're able to do is they're creating themselves or, or really branding themselves as mini movie studios where I assume, you know, probably your above the line talent might even be on payroll for more than one project, you know? And, and I think that this is starting to get really interesting. It, it is. Yeah, absolutely. And, and um, especially for producers and for, for directors when it, it's at the independent level, when you know where your next paycheck's coming from, it makes you sleep easier at night. So one, one of the things that you keep bringing up is, is using the resources that you have and you're speaking my language there but I know um, in, in sort of a preliminary conversation, you talked a little bit about the difference between hard money and soft money. Could, could you tell our listeners what that means and how did that play a role in your ability to get this project going? Yeah, absolutely. For The difference between hard money and soft money was absolutely critical and, and not just in Chaperone, but for any film that we're doing because I've 
I'm what I'm hoping that the next generation of filmmakers do is they stop they stop chasing the dentist. Do your film for twenty five thousand dollars and tell your voice, but also know the confines of what the in- industry is is working towards. What what their normal um, ways of making films are, and normal being the vast majority. Um, so soft money is effectively the subsidies that you can tap into as a filmmaker. So whether it's a grant or whether it's tax credits, um, those are considered soft money. Um, as well, people consider pre-sales, um, the pre-selling of your film and markets to be soft monies. And hard equity is effectively just that. It's it's just the purely the cash that's in the, in the film. And what you want to do is, going back to chaperones budgets, we would need to figure out what our debt to equity ratio would have to be. And then once we figured out what we could sustain and what we knew financers would spend, then we could start really drilling down to our budget and saying, where can we cut costs? Where can we make it to almost transactional to a point where we wouldn't give the financer an ability to say, well, there's too much uh, debt to equity. Um, So once you, you will never get it to be more, you will never get it to be no equity. There always has to be equity in a project, but you have to try and mitigate as much risk as possible. And that is greatly becoming reliant on tapping into subsidies and soft monies around the world. And that's by forming partnerships and doing co-productions and going going to places that are um, expanding their, their subsidies and trying to attract um, um, films to come to their country. So if you're looking at, um, you're saying something though that's just on my mind, and I realize I don't know what the heck you're talking about. Um, You mentioned debt to equity. What what is debt to equity? So debt is effectively the collateralized um, anything that's collateralized on the film, a collateralized loan. So that that being uh, the tax credits. If let's just say if you get tax credits on a project, you probably you're not going to be able to cash flow them yourselves. So it, it can be considered a loan. You can go to a bank with the paper and you say, would you like to cash flow my my tax credits? And banks will do it at a, at a cut rate. Um, so that's collateral and that's the debt. Um, if, effectively, yeah, and, and the- so, so I get a tax credit for $100,000. I'm just trying to do this for easy math. I go to the bank and, they, and they're willing to, to give me $80,000 against the 100. Is, is that close to how that works? Exactly. Okay. And now, now I have a loan with the bank for $80,000, but they're going to hold that tax credit as collateral. So, so similar to like when you buy a house, right? If I buy a house and I don't know, I want to take a loan against my house to buy a car, which I would never recommend doing that, by the way. <laughs> um, but, but let's just say, or, or I want to take a loan against my house to buy a vacation house, which again, I, I wouldn't recommend doing that. But for the sake of this, then what happens is, um, your your house is collateral. So if something goes really, really haywire, the bank can take your house back and they have something they can resell uh, to get their money back. So so you, so you the bank's essentially eliminating risk because now they have something to sell. So, in the, and sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off there, but I'm, I'm kind of getting this thought together. And, and so in the world of motion pictures, you have this tax credit, you give it to the bank, and if something goes haywire, you know, that tax credit's worth $100,000. They only gave you $80,000 to cash flow. And so now they're going to make out okay because they can resell it and get $100,000. So they got the $80,000 back plus uh, a little bit of um, icing on the cake. Does that sum it up pretty well? Exactly. That's exactly it. 
And and so that's it's great that and that's what I'm hoping that more filmmakers can understand and and that house is that house set in Canada or is it also in UK or is it you know where where are you going to get the majority of your of your tax credits so that you can try and mitigate as much risk of that as you can and that's why partnerships are are vital to to really to to independent filmmaking because the studios can can go and they can film anywhere if they can go to Georgia and they can do 30% or New Mexico for 40% they're going to go in and do that um and and they're going to make their money because they're they're spending more on P&A and they have the the bandwidth that it doesn't too much hurt their bottom line but whereas independent films it's um it's vital to how we actually get the 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 films that we're trying to make off the ground because smaller films have smaller audiences and you know the bigger the budget the wider you have to cast your net well you're not always going to cast you're not going to have the widest audience for chaperone chaperone we knew what our market would dictate and we knew that because we were having these conversations with distributors with sales agents and that that relationship again tying this all together is very key to understanding what then can your finance model support and what then can your budget support? You know, one of the things that I was I was hesitant to bring this up. So when I go on IMDb and I take a look at all the producer credits for the film The Chaperone, I see like a gazillion credits and you're one name among many. And I think based on what you're telling me, it sounds like there were a lot of like soft money favors um, that maybe in exchange for some of that those favors, somebody else got producer credits. Is, is that accurate? very accurate um and you by know, the way i don't mean to bring that up but i i was hesitant because i felt like i don't want to insult you but at the same time i also want to you know i want to find out how the gears worked in your process no you're absolutely right i mean you can take a look at 12 years a slave and then there's there's 26 producers on it and wow, uh, yeah. you know, and and also executive producers and so the difference is, is it's not so much a, a little bit of favors but unfortunately we now live in a in a, in an industry where they've kind of the audience is contracted to the streaming uh, networks, to the streaming platforms, and the platforms aren't paying as much as they used to. Blockbuster used to be a really great method of of revenue. We could project um, amounts that we would of of units that we would sell, yeah. and we could forecast sales. All that has gone away, and so now subsidies kind of become more. We're more reliant on subsidies. Now we have to speak to more sales agents. We have to speak to more uh, distributors, to more um, partners in various countries. So if you're if you're structuring this as a UK, Canadian, German, Belgium co-production, you're gonna have a lot of producers on there, um, and every financing entity brings you know four producers or something to that effect. And ultimately, sometimes you have to go get the cash through through a non-traditional money source, and that can be. As we've talked about a dentist, and so um, not that we had any dentists on on the chaperone, but sometimes somebody has to to curry favors for some cash, and you have to pony up um, producing credit. It's not to me in LA. This is a very big sticking point, and this is the difference I find between Los Angeles and New York. There's there's a very big sticking point within the studio system about who is the producer on there, who is the lead producer. Um, and who can go up and accept a statue? Whereas in New York or or any other regional city, I really find that I have no problem giving up credit, giving credit where credit is due. Um, so I think that it's vital for for people to to do that. I wish also we had a very open line between who is the lead producer and who is an investor or an executive producer. 
Yeah, I think I think that's one of the things like the the producers guild is is pretty big on uh, to your point. But at the same time, when you're operating in such independent, you know, couple notches above backyard indie, but still independent level, it sounds like you got to be very resourceful to get these things made, especially if you're talking, you know, real budget. And and certainly if you're making a period piece film, you needed some money. Absolutely. I think, and one of the other things that, that producers are very savvy about is also trying to understand how the uh, subsidies are changing in the world. I mean, the UK is is a perfect example to what happened with the EIS uh, scheme, which was uh, a fund that was really t- designed to incentivize investors to invest in small business. And producers were manipulating the fund to the point where the government had to get involved and slap people on the wrist. Um, and so understanding how these subsidies are shifting in all parts of our world also makes somebody valuable and, and does warrant ultimately a producing partnership and also a producing credit. Who helped you out with all these subsidies? Because, you know, it sounds like a lot of moving parts. It's certainly not my skill set. Um, but I know, you know, for in my example, in my world, I know some people at payroll companies and they know their way around at least domestic tax credits. Where would you go? to find these resources if you're putting together your own project that might even be international? One of the great websites is IFTA. Uh, they're really fantastic for sales agents, but also they they give a bit of a snapshot into a gateway of uh, what's going on on the, world, uh, on the world stage for subsidies. Screen Daily is a fantastic publication, probably in my mind better than Variety or, or Hollywood Reporter. ScreenDaily.com is, uh, is a great resource into what's actually happening um, with funds, government-run funds, and public funds available, and whether that's even public funds such as the NEA used to do. And that's one of the great subsidies that the U.S. hopefully brings back. There was two main um, investment tax schemes in the U.S., or there was one main investment tax scheme, which was uh, Section 181, which was a federal investment uh, tax liability for investors in the United States, but also the NEA and the National Endowment of the Arts really funded a lot of people's favorite films of the 1990s that were independent. So keeping abreast on on all the shifting subsidies, IFTA is a great resource in Screen Daily. Oh man, you are you're a wealth of knowledge, and uh, you know that earlier comment. <laughs> I, it's like I keep tuning my own horn. I'm I'm thinking I can't believe this guy was listening to me early on, and boy, how far you've come. Um, thank you. Uh, so talk, so let me, let me ask you some more like personal human questions, right? Sure. How hard is it to live your life as a creative? Uh, I think definitely, uh, I mean, everybody kind of goes through the ups and downs of the uh, industry. I really think that there's not enough discussion for how the creative is done on a personal level. And I think that this slowly starting to become a little bit more to the surface, not only through people's works, but also through uh, people's ability now to communicate with each other on a wider scale. So because of Twitter and because of Facebook and, and Instagram and Snapchat, I think people are just understanding a little bit more about how the cookie dough is made. And if you read a lot of writers, what's going on through this ATA, WGA writer strike, yeah. you see a lot of anger or resentment, but also a lot of depression that's kind of permeating how the state of the industry. And that's, I think, why people are starting to turn to independent uh, film a little bit more. They're starting to, to, they don't mind making films on a smaller budget if it's going to retain the more um, creative control and also more creative um, creative influence into the project. So for that reason, I think that 
we really need to speak up as artists and who we who we are and what we're doing because with really we have to be good humans first within the industry and we've seen it with all the basically without Hollywood putting up with much of the bullshit these days um how they've outed a lot of executives who have bad habits or who have done nefarious um personal um personal affairs and so that is really the genesis of why i think more people need to speak up about their experiences because ultimately as we've been talking about the state of the industry uh and and our value is within our knowledge and so knowing what somebody went through makes them understand what what makes others prepared for what's actually going on in the industry and how to prepare for all the crazy craziness that comes with Hollywood. I wanted to also ask you, and, and you know, this relates to the craziness of Hollywood, but you, you have access uh, to, to several different movie stars in your life. And I wanted to just one, can, can you give us some insight on, on how you might go from being maybe even somebody who doesn't live in LA uh, to suddenly you're somebody producing films with some talent, uh, some name talent, and and that can be daunting for a lot of people. What tips do you have to network your way into those relationships? Um, that's such a great question. I, I would say I'm actually intimidated by talent, um, to be very honest. I think talent and creative is is actually they have to live in that world and you and as a producer you have to isolate them and, and you have to protect them from any business dealings. And that's even someone starting at a twenty five thousand dollar film. And I think that's why I was not a good director. I actually think that I was dealing too much with the business side. I was preoccupied with what how much was the location cost and what were what were we spending on crew meals. And when you're not living in the creative, I think that's where films can really go wrong. So if you're a producer at any level right now, focus keeping the creative together, like the writer director, keep them separate in in and out of any of the out of the BS that kind of comes with Hollywood on the business side. But nurturing talent is really something you need to have a trusting relationship with. I think if you don't have that trust, then why are you making that film? Um, Would you accelerate those relationships by hiring a casting director? I wouldn't know. No, definitely not. Uh, Just to, just to finish this thought, I actually had a a film fall apart. um, A a really film uh, that I wasn't, satisfied with on the script but i believed more in the talent um the right the director and and the actor i believed in them more than i actually believed in the script because i knew they could have uh they could have done justice to it and so because when it was younger in my career i was too hands-on and i didn't let them do what they were needed to do the film ultimately fell apart which will probably be one of my bigger regrets which i can speak more on as i get distance into it um, and so, but those relationships were purely put together because of, because of the producer, because of, uh, the producers on it were, were the ones to actually handle the, who would be right for, as a director, who would be right as the lead actor or the second lead. And I really think that casting directors are fantastic for TV series and for, um, down the line uh, casting. So third, fourth, fifth leads, I think they're really tapped into that. But as a producer for any of the films I've ever worked on, it's always been the producers who attach the the, ta- the, the first and second lead. So, so you just mentioned, you know, in, in, uh, in your thoughts here, you, you mentioned a situation where one of your projects fell apart 
Um, I've, I've been through it. I get it. Uh, it's painful, but how do you bounce back? That was, I actually took, I had to take some time off a little bit. Um, I took a couple weeks off after that cause I went through a really bad funk and, um, and this is one of those understanding it was, this was purely through communication with other producers who had gone through similar things to that point. I had never really had a bigger project and these were some fairly big actors that were involved in it. Um, but to that point I hadn't had such a high profile project kind of fall apart. So I, I took a step back and try and reevaluate who I am as a producer and why are we doing this and what stories am I in it to tell? And that's, where I had to look inward to to realize that nurturing a talent has to has to happen at least from my perspective. Everyone has a different perspective, but I believe that you have to insulate them and, and just let them be themselves. Did you uh, want to quit the industry? Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think you know when we're talking, it's it's actually hard for me to ask these questions because I think I think uh, at least from my position. You know, I always want to paint a picture of optimism, you know, and, and I get it. Like, not everything's rosy and this is a lot of hard work. But the part that's not talked about is what the heck you do when projects fall apart because it sucks. Yeah. Yeah. And, and uh, there's and, oh, and trying sorry. to overcome all that stuff. It's just crazy. And, and it's also fun to be talking to you to hear how you're overcoming it right now. It sounds like you're still processing a few things. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and and the great thing about Twitter is that that there are people that are are so great on there that are going through the same things. People that are in real big companies that are commiserating, you know, on Twitter and sometimes, you know, we are a community still even if it's online or offline. We're still a community that has to hold each other up and we'll always, you know, we see a tweet and we'll fire off an email saying, "How you holding up? What's going on?" Um and we all suffer for it whether it's director writer, producers, actors, we all suffer the same things. And, but without each other, I don't think we could be as strong. Yeah. So kind of booking to take this whole way back to the beginning and bookend it a bit, you know, this, this concept, like you were saying about these, uh, you were describing it. I mentioned mini movie studio, but this concept, when you were talking about borrowing props from these other uh, production companies and stuff, I couldn't help. I was trying to think like, where have I heard some of these concepts before and I realized, you know, Roger Corman had this book called uh, How I Made 100 Movies in Hollywood and Never Lost a Dime. <laughs> yeah. And what was interesting about him when he was doing it back in the day is it was all theatrical distribution, you yeah. know, way back in the day when he was doing it. And he was still able to turn, you know, profit or at least not lose money. There's a lot of people suffering through projects falling apart, I think, because this, this industry is constantly in flux. But mm-hmm. yet... You know, to, to some of the points you're making, if you start thinking of yourself bigger than just the one project and start saying, yeah, how can I, you know, pull a Roger Corman here? I, I think that adds some optimism to this ever-changing thing. It does. You're right. And I think understanding where we came from will get us to where we're going. And that's one reason why I work or and I read so many uh, bi- biographies by Hollywood moguls, writers, actors, independent uh, independent producers, just so you can understand that you'll find a kinship with them through their trials and tribulations. You'll see yourself reflected in there because they've gone through it. Um, Roger Corman's a great one. Mike Metavoy has a really great uh, biogra- autobiography. Um, Kid Stays in the Picture by Bob Evans is, is another great one. So I think you know, again, knowledge is power, and you also start to see how relationships, however small, actually can be a big 
a big factor into getting your next film made. You know, I won't mention any names, but but you bring up an interesting point about the importance of re- reading these biographies. Some, sometimes you read them and, you know, it might be some obscure biography, but you're out at some sort of party or networking event or what have you, film festival, et cetera, and you'll bump into somebody. And I, I had read this uh, autobiography uh, about a well-known producer, and I was out at a party and I met his former assistant and I was able to speak at length about this guy um, yeah. you know, how cool is that? And, and that's, I think just another byproduct of everything you're talking about. It's fantastic. Um, if you think of Ted Hope's, uh, books, if you think of Christine Vachon, they've written some really powerful books about not only how the, how the pizza is made, but also the feelings that go into the downturns and the upswings that can, that can permeate our lives. And again, it's, it's just a, it's more having more of a conversation with each other that can support us because Hollywood is built on a foundation of smoke and mirrors. And over the course of a generation, we've been fortunate to start knocking down some of these walls. And I think having this clear communication is really only going to lift us up. You know what, what's interesting to me when you talk about smoke and mirrors? I've I've had a lot of lunches with the, with people you know that are playing at the studio level, and um, what one of the things that I find that's so fascinating is a lot of the money that fuels Hollywood is somebody else's like research and development or their fun experimental money, and a lot of this industry is driven on outside money coming in just because they think the film industry is sexy. It, has that been your experience as well? Very well, very much. I mean, it very much is a lot of uh, a lot of funds are started through. It used to be hedge fund money, and then it used to be. Uh, then they started moving over to um, Chinese money, and then now they're starting to move to Latin American money. And so, really, it's it's a bit of a, a pillage, um, you know, system where they're they're using these subsidies to to further advance themselves. Um, without really leaving, they're taking advantage of people who really aren't educated to how the, how financing goes or how video royalties are, are distributed. Um, and because of that, as you say, the beauty of Hollywood, the smoke and mirrors of Hollywood is it's allure of having fame and, and fortune and being in, you know, hanging out with uh, Brad Pitt or, you know, Matt Damon. So, some of these, though, this is why I, I do these podcasts is because I think for the next generation of filmmakers, they're going to be more cognizant of this. How, how can a rising tide lift all boats? How do we tap into subsidies but also elevate filmmakers? How do we elevate filmmakers who are underrepresented or who have very little voices in the industry? So I think the, for the future of the independent um, of independent film, I think I'm not worried about that. It's what will studio filmmaking become because that's rapidly shifting. And I don't think even the studios have figured that out yet. Well, in your own world right now of producing, so I mentioned a few things in your biography at the beginning. And as we wrap this up, I'd love to hear what you're working on, where people can find your stuff. And if somebody has a few questions where they could reach out to you. Yeah, absolutely. Any any filmmaker can reach out to me at any point. I love talking to filmmakers about my experience. I love trying they can ask me any questions about how did you do this or or what do you think about that. Um they can normally reach me through Twitter. Um my Twitter handle is N I C I Z Z I. So it's just my name, Nick Izzy. And what I'm working on right now is I'm we're in 
distribution for one bedroom, which just had its premiere for at Fantasia Fest, which went very well, uh, and we should be broadcasting sometime this uh, this fall before Halloween. And I'm also executive producing a really wonderful documentary uh, about Anatoly Subchak, who was one of Putin's um, political friends, but also political rivals. Um, and that is uh, that's called the case, and that's also should be premiering uh, in North America before the end of the year. And then the chaperone is going to be premiering on TV. We just finished our theatrical run. It's going to be premiering on TV on PBS um, sometime before Halloween. That's awesome. I'm I'm impressed. I'm honored that that you listened to this podcast early on. I know I mentioned it like three times now, but it's you know it's I, I guess I guess from my own perspective, it's just fun. Um, and, and I love that. I love that, you know, I could contribute some little itty bitty piece, like I was saying earlier to all this wonderful body of work that you're a part of. And by the way, Nick Izzy sounds like a really cool name. I don't know if anybody's <laughs> told you that. <laughs> I've heard it many times. They said it's a rock star name. I don't, really I, I, my parents probably think otherwise. Well, yeah. So, and, and you sound so pragmatic. So, so I'm not, I'm not thinking of you as like a party animal rock star right now. Uh, but, I, but I am Thank thinking you. you, you're definitely one of these professionals that gets things done. And it's been so great to be able to chat with you. Uh, please feel free to come back on the podcast anytime. Thank you very much. I look forward to talking again and giving some insight. Thanks, Jason. Thank you for listening. This has been another episode of the Filmmaking Stuff podcast with Jason Brubaker. If you like our show and want to get more filmmaking info, make sure you check out filmmakingstuff.com and join us every week for new filmmaking tactics. Until next time, take action and make your movie now.